Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast. I'm senior political reporter Liz Bates and today I'm joined by our chief reporter Emilio Casalicchio. Hi Emilio. Hi Liz. And our editor Kevin Schofield. Hi Kevin. Hello Liz. Um, I should just say actually before we start there's been a, a Brexit casualty this week and it's you. I mean you're you're ill. Oh yeah yeah well, I'm not feeling because too of, great. But because I, of know. Brexit I think we can blame Brexit because you <laughs> haven't had time to go to the doctors because of Brexit. That, that is actually true. Yeah, yeah yeah just too much going on. I, I thought you were talking about yourself because We'll probably come to it later, but this is your last ever podcast. Yeah. Which is a, a cruel blow. It is. For not just us, but for podcast listeners. Liz is off to pastures for new. For podcast fans. Absolutely. A devastating blow. I assume blow. it's... Is, is it the end of the Politics Home podcast altogether? Because no. you're not going to carry on without Yeah, me. we are. Yeah. You... We, we plan to make it better. Oh, that's... And if you notice, Kevin said it's your last ever, so you're never even going to come back as a guest. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. I've, okay. made, I've, made, I've made sure of that. Well, it's nice to hear about all this live as we record it so that's nice just <laughs> choke down my emotions and carry on now after a brief reprieve over christmas parliament returned this week with a bang and when i say bang i mean the total implosion of the government's authority in westminster Theresa may's minority was woefully exposed as the beleaguered prime minister suffered two further brexit defeats in the commons but while opposition against no deal mounted a majority in favor of anything else is yet to emerge and with the clock ticking MPs decided that now was the time to spend over an hour squabbling about parliamentary procedure and whether John Burko is responsible for the sticker in his wife's car. Yeah, so there's been two defeats in the Commons. So should we start with, first of all, the Cooper Amendment? There's basically been some moves within the Commons to try to prevent a no-deal Brexit. We're not really sure whether it can prevent a no-deal Brexit, but Yvette Cooper put an amendment down earlier this week. Um, what, to the finance bill. To the finance bill. What was it? And, and, and has it done what it was supposed to do? Uh, well, so the amendment in simple, the most simple terms basically restricts the Treasury's ability to raise taxes if there's a no-deal Brexit. So the belief by many people is that if there's a no-deal Brexit, the economy will take a hit, Treasury revenues will go down, therefore the Chancellor will maybe have to cut spending or put up taxes to fill the gap. So what the Cooper Amendment, which was backed by lots of Tory MPs as well, um, did, or does, is um, restrict that ability. So they put a straitjacket essentially on the Chancellor so he won't have as much power to... Um, raise taxes. Now, the, the aim of it was twofold. One was to show the strength of feeling in Parliament against a no-deal Brexit, but also to potentially, I think, put more pressure on the government to avoid a no-deal Brexit because it ties the government's hands. You know, they need, I guess, as much economic firepower as they, as they can muster if we crash out without a deal. So this, I guess, is an incentive for mm. them not to uh, allow a no-deal to happen. The problem there is, though, at the moment, no deal is the default position. It's legally set in trade that we are leaving the EU on the 29th of March unless Article 50 is extended or there's another referendum or Brexit is somehow overturned. So there needs to be an alternative plan that the whole House or mm. a majority of the House can coalesce around. And that's the problem that we've got at the moment is that that plan does not exist. So at the moment, next week, next Tuesday night is the big vote on Theresa May's deal, everyone expects it to go down, and then um, we're into, as the Prime Minister said at the weekend, uncharted waters. Okay, well we'll try to figure out what those uncharted waters are in a bit, but let's go on to the Grieve Amendment, because there was another amendment this week, and it was around the same issue, basically trying to hand control back to Parliament if Theresa May's deal doesn't get through. So what does the Grieve Amendment actually do? So it's basically um, trying to 
restrict the time that the Prime Minister has to come back to Parliament with another plan if her deal gets voted down. So as Kevin saying, everyone's expecting that her deal's going to get voted down on Tuesday. And as it stood before, she was going to have sort of three weeks to a month, basically, to come back with another proposal, which would potentially give her time to maybe go back to the EU and talk to them, come up with some other, other idea, whatever. This amendment that Dominic Grieve tabled gives her three sitting days instead to come back and table something else, come up with a, a plan B, basically. And yeah, it passed. The MPs voted for it, so it's another big defeat for the government. And basically, yeah, again, it kind of ties the government's hands. I think part of the thinking was that Theresa May had essentially sort of wasted time, some critics might say, by postponing her meaningful vote a month ago. Some so people suspect that she's trying to run the clock down exactly, to they, sort of strong-arm MPs into voting for her deal. Exactly. So the, the idea is that if we're getting closer and closer to the 29th of March and there's no other plan on the table, then MPs are going to think, you know, we don't want a no deal. I guess we're going to have to vote for this. That's basically her core argument. If, you, if we want a deal, this is the deal. So we've already lost a month and MPs are thinking, you know, we can't give her another month, three weeks or whatever, to come back with a different plan. So restrict her to three days and hopefully we'll have something that we can work with potentially and the idea being that yeah it makes a no deal again less likely I mean what you've got to remember as well on the finance bill amendment on the Cooper amendment that was the first time in 41 years that a government had lost a vote on the finance bill and yet it probably wasn't even the most remarkable thing that happened this week it's got almost got to the stage where government defeats are now so commonplace that it's almost news if they if they win one of these, one of these. Well, I mean, that's that's what it's like they, to use that holy old phrase. Parliament has properly taken back control now. The government is a government in name only, essentially, completely uh, at the mercy of Parliament, which a lot of people would say is a good thing. But I know I always think back to our decision to call that general election. You know, if she hadn't done that, she would have had a majority, albeit a probably small one, but that would have given her a bit of breathing space. So all we'd these be problems, in a completely different position. Totally. And of course, the DUP then wouldn't be a pivotal part of the Brexit negotiations in the way that they are. I mean, they're really kind of holding, have been holding the government to ransom. Exactly. So um, it's extraordinary. There's, there's only 10 DUP MPs, but the power that they wield is quite remarkable. On the Grieve Amendment, People have been saying, and Dominic Grieve specifically has been saying, that this hands control, a bit of control back to Parliament. And that, I mean, everybody's expecting Theresa May to lose this deal. And so everybody's thinking about what's going to happen afterwards. And, and then what we're expecting is a bunch of different amendments on different things. Those votes, how meaningful are they? And will it actually hand power back to MPs or can the government ignore them? Uh, no, no, they, they will be uh, very important votes. And the, the, the whole point of this as well is basically to find out what there is support for in the House of Commons. We know what MPs don't support, it would appear, they don't support no deal. Uh, there doesn't appear to be a majority at the moment for a second referendum. Uh, there doesn't appear to be a majority for a general election, although we'll, we'll soon find out if Labour make good on their promise to table a vote of no confidence next week if the meaningful vote goes against the government. So yeah, everything will be in play if Theresa May's deal is voted down next week. But I think the key thing there is that MPs can vote for whatever they want, but it doesn't have legal weight. True. So, yeah. so the government doesn't have to do what the MPs tell it to do. Um, Theresa May will get to choose. But I think the issue is that if the government was to ignore them, then it would be essentially really terrible politics and the likelihood is that it wouldn't. But the It's really thing, about exerting political pressure rather than exactly. legal pressure. Constitutional exactly, yeah. chaos. Exactly. And it's the government that has to make the decision ultimately. But the other thing to remember is that 
MPs can choose to do whatever they want, but the EU also has to agree with it, obviously. So even if MPs come back and say, oh, no, actually, we want Norway or we want the Labour plan, which is roughly this with the customs union deal or something like that, the EU could still come back and say, well, no, that doesn't really work for us. Or, yeah, but you'd have to make these concessions instead or whatever. Just MPs agreeing to do whatever they want. Like, that doesn't mean that we've got a deal by any stretch. And, yeah, the clock's constantly ticking, which is why, ultimately, no deal is... At the moment, it's the likely outcome, really, in a sense. I mean, Unless they can agree on something else. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I mean, yeah, ultimately, the only options are the deal, really, that's on the table, or a no-deal Brexit, which is what's going to happen if we do nothing. Yeah. And then, as I understand it, Parliament could, or the government could, unilaterally revoke Article 50. That doesn't actually need agreement from the EU. That's very unlikely to happen. So, but it is, it is the other way of... Of preventing a no-deal Brexit. And that, that's not without its, its problems because uh, there are European Parliament elections in May. So if you were to extend Article 50 past May, then would Britain have to take part in those elections, even though we're probably leaving the European Union? You know, and then the new Parliament sits at the beginning of July, so you couldn't really have Britain in and out at the same time when that happens so everywhere you look there are problems on the horizon and it's worth noting as well that yes the government can revoke article 50 unilaterally but it can't extend it unilaterally to extend it it needs the agreement from 27 member states and obviously there's a political issue there because the government could potentially try and extend it and say yeah we want it a few more months or a few more weeks or something and potentially mps pro-Brexit, Tory MPs particularly, you can imagine, might be potentially willing to countenance that. But if the, if the government wants to just unilaterally revoke it completely, i.e. scrap the whole thing with the potential promise of triggering it again at some point in the future, there's way less chance that Tory MPs are going to appreciate that. And, you know, the, the chances of a, no confidence in the government or something like that becomes, I think, much, much greater. Um, so I do want to touch on what happened with John Burko. Uh, this week. Um, So what did he do that was so controversial? Right, we'll try and keep this as simple as possible. So the Grieve Amendment, there was a strong belief by people who know much more about parliamentary procedure than I do, including the Commons clerks, uh, that his amendment was out of order because it was an amendment to the business motion, which basically said uh, we're going to have five days of debate now on Brexit. Um, Now he amended it, as Emilio said, to restrict the time that the Prime Minister has to come back if their deal is voted down. Now, all the indications were that he, John Berko, would not be able to accept it. And he was told that by, as I say, by his own clerks, that it would be completely wrong for him to do so. But he did. And uh, predictably, the you-know-what hit the fan yesterday. And straight after Prime Minister's questions, there was a succession of points of order, uh, by mainly by Tory MPs, just having a pop at him and accusing him of being biased. Now, uh, that is, again, absolutely extraordinary development for the Speaker of the House to be openly challenged on his impartiality uh, in the Commons. I mean, it's, I don't ever remember it happening before. But I thought he actually, leave aside whether he was right or wrong to do what he did, I thought he actually handled that hour of just a barrage of criticism. I thought he handled it. He looked like he was enjoying it. Yeah, he you does. Know, look he look did, he did, you know, because he, he has got... A, well, he's admitted himself he voted Remain. He'd like Britain to remain in the EU, but his office is meant to be impartial. So he's no friend of all the Tory Brexiteers who were getting up to give him dog's abuse yesterday. So, and he absolutely revelled in it, I thought. I think he just loves being centre of attention. Well, there is that as well, yeah. Especially recently, because of the Brexit stuff that's been going on. But even, even before that and separately from that, he has been accused of being partisan, yeah. being biased really towards Labour. But do you think that's about the fact that he's just 
constantly trying to hand more power to Parliament, and that actually undermines the government. And so people see that as him being on the side of Labour, but really he's on the side of Parliament. I think that's the argument he would make. I thought it was quite telling yesterday, though, that when he was daggers drawn with his Tory MPs yesterday, Labour MPs were applauding him. So I think that gave a clear indication as to where Labour are, as far as John Burke was concerned. They think the guy's great because, yeah, they do believe that he is a pro-Labour speaker. And, you know, he's had his own controversies in the past few months in terms of bullying allegations, which he denies. There's been absolutely no encouragement by Labour to get rid of him because they know that he's good for them to be in that chair. He's more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt than the Conservatives. And how significant, Emilio, do you think a sticker in his wife's car is? Well, so this is um, during this uh, big, long points of order row with John Burko and the various Tory MPs. Uh, one of them, right at the end, um, I think his name's Adam Holloway, got up and said, well, you have a car which has got a sticker in it that says, I think the sticker says bollocks to Brexit. You drive that car, surely, with this bollocks to Brexit sticker around, so I guess that must be your, your view, right? And John Burko in much more flowery language than I can put it, said, actually, that's my wife's car. <laughs> and uh, it's my wife's sticker. And, you know, you wouldn't expect that my views, are, my wife's views are dictated by my views. And it was basically a great illustration of just how the whole thing has just descended into this incredible farce. It's like uh, he was there when the sticker was put on, but wasn't involved. <laughs> that was the situation. Line, yeah. <laughs> so what we're really waiting for at the moment is the meaningful vote. Yeah. Is there any chance that the government could win? Well, there's a good story in the Mirror this morning that, that uh, Number 10 are finally, it would appear, wakening up to the fact that there are some Labour MPs who are persuadable, you know, that they could put some stuff, tack onto the motion that people will be voting on next week, which will make it palatable to Labour MPs, particularly in leave areas, people like John Mann, well, he's a Brexiteer, Caroline Flint, Lisa Nande, uh, Ruth Smith, people like that, who I think would quite fancy voting for the deal because their constituents voted to leave. So what the government have said is they're minded to accept an amendment in the name of some of those MPs to guarantee workers and environmental rights after Brexit. So that, it looks finally like they're making some attempts to, to win over Labour MPs. For a, it's a, couple, a small number though, isn't it, like compared to what they need? Potentially 20, they reckon, but that's nowhere near enough. I mean, at the moment you're looking at a defeat north of 50 probably a good deal north of 50s. One of the things that they were doing, we saw a few knighthoods handed out before Christmas. Yeah, and, but, but they haven't worked. But they haven't worked. And more recently, um, they've been getting people into number 10 for drinks. Tracy Crouch was one of them last night uh, who was in there and I spoke to her afterwards and she said that she'd spent most of the night talking about football and then left early to go to the gym and she's still voting against the deal. She and also, it. she's doing dry January, so even the free booze didn't help because she wasn't drinking it. One thing that's worth noting about this meaningful vote and the defeat is that we really don't know what's going to happen between now and then, and it could be nothing. And the chances are is that if it's nothing, then yeah, obviously it's going to be defeated. But Theresa May is constantly saying that at some point she's going to get something back from the EU that's expected to be a exchange of letters with some kind of concessions or some kind of... On the backstop. Yeah, wording specifically about the backstop that kind of dampens some of the concerns that MPs have got. So it kind of hinges on that stuff. They've also, in the last couple of days, been trying to announce a few different things to try and calm MPs down. For example, they were saying that MPs would get to vote at the end of the transition on whether they would prefer to extend the transition period or uh, invoke the backstop. You know, trying, the idea of trying to give MPs a little bit more control about it. If, if you can offer enough 
things like that potentially and the EU can come back with something that MPs like the stand of yeah you know 20 MPs that she could maybe try and win around with some workers rights restriction stuff or whatever and you know bits and bobs to satisfy enough people on her benches the kind of more moderate people that are saying I can't back this but would be willing to count on it something or other you know you never know like we say the chances are it's going to be defeated from the way it looks now but the way it looks in a few days time could be quite different and we got no idea but I thought it was significant as well that yesterday they, they announced some measures to try and woo the DUP and they just completely fell on stony ground the DUP are completely they will unmoved, not be wooed unmoved <laughs> they, were, they, they were crap though Oh, they were absolutely rubbish. It was like a seven-point plan that were just like, oh, just awful. I mean, I don't know, they were really struggling. I think they got to two and they were like, oh my God, (laughs) how are we going to pad this out to seven? It has to be seven. Um, So yeah, it's it's looking pretty grim for her. I'd quite like some predictions because you guys are... so so good at predictions. You guys are political experts. (laughs) So we're expecting the meaningful vote to be lost. What's going to happen after that? Well, I can tell you what a cabinet minister told me uh, two days ago. They think that what will happen is she'll lose next week and then she will probably come back with the withdrawal agreement again, but with a permanent customs union, which would pretty much do away with the need for a hard Irish border, which they think would then win over the DUP. Might be enough to persuade a lot of um, moderate Labour MPs. Wouldn't be enough for Jeremy Corbyn because basically he wants to bring the whole show crashing down that's his that's his aim so we're expecting a soft brexit is that, that, be your, is that be, what you put your money on yeah definitely i think it's going to, need to be a soft brexit i think no deal probably won't happen give myself a little wriggle from there but you know the thing is as well right if that were to happen though that's not like a nice tidy solution because it would completely split the tory party you know your brexiteers and all that are, would go absolutely bananas because they say customs union that's not brexit so they'd go crazy so it split Tory party, and it'd obviously split the opposition as well because you're going to have I would imagine a lot of your moderates who want a soft Brexit are completely at odds with the party leadership so there'd be a huge Labour rebellion as well so there'd be absolute carnage after it but it would avoid a no deal Brexit Do you think there's the possibility then that there is a majority in the House of Commons for that a softer Brexit? Yes I think that's been the case since the general election Any chance of a general election if we see a vote of no confidence? Because we're expecting Labour to put a vote of no confidence down, right? That's their moment yeah, when, yeah. when so Theresa Labour, May loses the yeah, deal. Yeah, so Labour are, are sort of saying basically that assuming that it gets voted down, then they will table this motion of no confidence because in their view that would be the best time to strike. The chances of a no confidence vote in the government actually passing is in- incredibly low. It's very unlikely to happen. But obviously there were some reports yesterday about some pro-Remain Tory MPs being potentially willing to back Labour in a no confidence vote because they think that that could be the best way to get a second referendum, which is their ultimate aim. So, you know, it's not completely unthinkable. It's very unlikely, not completely unthinkable. Tory MPs would be kicked out of the party, right? So the government, uh, some government source, I think it was in BuzzFeed, some government source was saying to them that they would be voting basically to end their careers because, yeah, they'd be kicked out of the party and they would be, they wouldn't be on they'd selections. Be, they'd lose for, the whip and they'd the be deselected. Yeah, the, then, do you think there's people that are willing to do that, though? Yeah, I think so. Well, Nick Bowles, for instance, has already said he would vote whatever was necessary to avoid a no deal. So, you know, if he figured that was the only way to avoid a no deal. Mm. And also that you'd be bargaining, well, OK, it's fine for number 10 to talk tough at the moment and see where they bend in their careers but if the government falls so does the Prime Minister mm. you know she couldn't hang around that she, she, I think she'd have to resign so um, there'd be a whole new leadership in place of so who's to say but they, they, might, they might be a Brexiteer and they might be treated as heroes I mean just no one knows and obviously yeah if let's imagine a confidence vote does go through obviously that isn't the end of it because then there's a 14 day period where another government could try and form uh, and then if that doesn't work then yeah you would be in the world of triggering a general election and we'd, we'd probably have to 
extend Article 50 at that point because you couldn't have a general election but would be, what, minimum six weeks mm. and then a new government and then renegotiate mm. all before March 29th? Get, I mean, impossible, yeah. absolutely impossible. If chaos reigned and there was a general election and we ended up with a Labour government. <laughs> I'm mean, not even sure that we would end up with a Labour government because the polling in Scotland, which obviously I, for obvious reasons, keep a close eye on. Why is that? In Sc- I'm Scottish. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. I've never mentioned it. No, you've never mentioned my it. No. no. And, you know, Labour are now third. And I speak to the SNP people, I guess, who would say that, wouldn't they? But they think that Labour would be back down to one MP, probably. And if that were the case, they couldn't get a, a government down here. Even if there were an election, it really probably wouldn't solve any of the problems to do with Brexit. You know, it's, no. the likelihood is that, yeah, there'll be maybe a hung parliament or a tiny Tory majority or something like that. And that doesn't solve any of the issues, you're still going to have a big parliamentary impasse. I do think it's a bit of an issue that basically the Labour Party, and particularly the leadership, are desperate for a general election. But then when you say to them, what, what are you going to do? What's your plan for Brexit? And it's so vague, we don't really know well, what a Labour government trying to negotiate Brexit would look like. Well, the Labour manifesto would need to make clear whether they would implement Brexit or not, if there was a general election before March 29th. So, you know, if they were to... Which I don't think they would, but if they were to overturn their current position and say, right, we're going to campaign for Remain, you know, they could kiss bye-bye to lots of Labour seats in the North. People who voted Leave, they'd be like, oh, no chance. And all they'd end up doing is piling up lots of votes in London, where they don't need them anyway. Um, it might help them in Scotland a bit, I guess, because Scotland voted to Remain. But then if they, I think, as is more likely, they pledge to respect the result of the 2016 referendum and implement Brexit, jobs first Brexit, whatever on earth that means, then, you know, that would be terrible for them in Scotland and in other parts of the country. So, uh, yeah, that would be the time when Labour would, would have to, as they say, shit or get off the pot. And, and uh, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. And uh, what Labour is suggesting at the moment is that they would, it would be up to the membership what their position on Brexit would be, basically whether they want to back Brexit or not, essentially. And as we know from history, when Labour puts a policy question like that to the membership, it could take months or years before they actually manage to get round an answer. So, you know, Brexit will be done way before they've actually decided what they think about it. Uh, Now, speaking of incompetence, I just want to quickly touch on our most gaff-prone minister, Chris Grayling, um, because he's been at it again, not content with destroying the railways, he's turned his attention to the seas and more specifically how to ensure goods will still be delivered under a no-deal Brexit. So what's he been up to? He's been doing silly things again, hasn't he? Yeah, he's kind of got away with this up to a point because it happened over Christmas and New Year, but his department gave a contract to a supposedly a ferry company who don't have any ferries. So the the aim is if, if there's a blockage at Dover, uh, other ferry ports would come into use. Like Ramsgate Street. would yeah. be used as um, to relieve the, the pressure on Dover. But yeah, it quickly transpired that this multi-million pound contract, I can't remember exactly how much it is, but it's... A, 14 million, I think. It's a yeah. lot of money. And this company don't have any boats, which is a bit of a drawback for a ferry company. And uh, even better, the terms and conditions on their website were lifted from a takeaway company. And it gave you instructions on how to order food online from them. So, you know, while you're waiting for your ferry to turn up, you can have a vindaloo. And, and, and Grayling's best argument was, oh, but it's a British company. Surely she, people should be supportive because we've given it to a British... You know, if that's the best you've got, yeah. it's not looking good. Do you think this um, means that Chris Grayling can literally survive anything? Uh, well, I think we've already seen that he can survive pretty much anything as long as Theresa May's in power. I think that's the idea, basically. Do you think, statistically speaking, one day he'll do something good by accident? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's bound to, yeah, but the, the law of averages means he will one day get a job that he makes a success of, you know? And I just hope I'm, I'm alive to see it. <laughs> Not long left, though. <laughs> hey! Finally, let's move on to our weirdest story of the week. So, Kevin, what have you got for me? Yeah, I'm afraid to say it's still Chris Grayling, who... Um, 
failed to properly organise a traffic jam, which in Britain takes some doing. <laughs> this was another no deal planning exercise where um, they were trying to work out basically um, what would happen if, again, if there's a snarl up at the uh, Dover Cali border and they need to use a disused airfield as a lorry park. It's a glamorous Brexit, isn't Fantastic. It? So whether the roads round about that area, Marston, I think it's called, round that area, would be able to handle all these lorries um, trundling along the road. So the aim was to have 150 lorries, which paid for by the government. So they'd pay lorry drivers to basically rock up in the morning, do a traffic jam, and see if it caused traffic chaos. But unfortunately, only 89 turned up, and one of them was a bin lorry. <laughs> and it cost 50 grand. So the government's seen a huge success, but mm, was it really? I'm not so sure. I've, I've, I've one, one little plug for my good friend and colleague from The Independent, Tom Peck, who, if you haven't um, read what he wrote about it, he was sent to cover it for Independent, and it's absolutely hilarious. So I'd, I would Google for that if you get yeah. the chance. Emilio, what's your weirdest story of the week? Um, well, my weirdest story is, it's amusing, but it kind of comes from actually a bit of a dark place. Um, That's Brexit. <laughs> yeah. uh, a Tory MP called David T.C. Davis has started wearing a body cam uh, when he interacts with members of the public so that he can record if they're intimidating or aggressive or whatever. He can use it as evidence. And there's a he was on Newsnight and there was quite a nice footage of him wearing his body cam. He kind of has it strapped to him and it kind of comes out as the middle of his, just below his chest. But the reason that he's doing it is because um, recently there has been an increase in intimidation of MPs, particularly around Parliament. And it's a story that kind of exploded this week when um, a Tory MP, Anna Subri, she was shouted out and called a Nazi and a liar and a fascist um, while she was doing interviews around Parliament and a few other MPs that and Joe Jones, Owen Jones yep. um, they also had issues, particularly with this group of pro-Brexit guys that they wear yellow vests like the protesters in France. It's kind of homage to that, I suppose. Um, and basically, they desperately want Brexit to happen. They think that all the MPs that are trying to argue against it are traitors, etc. They've become a kind of quite small but quite ang- angry force around Parliament. And David D.C. Davies' uh, solution is to wear a camera on his body all the time. <laughs> David T.V. Davies. Hey, very good. <laughs> Did you just think of that? No, it was actually because it was. A... You could have said yes. No, no, no one would have known. No one would No, it was actually it was a predictive text error. When I was actually David TC oh. David, and I thought, oh, that's actually a good pun. I couldn't have thought of myself. Uh, my question about that would be: Would anyone recognise him? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. He's he's the idiot that wears the body cam, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, the that's thing. him. Yeah, that's David. The thing. Oh, yeah, no, the guy with the camera. Yeah, yeah. yeah. TV Davis, as he's now being called. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week, I'm afraid. So, time for emotional it's goodbyes. Just, uh, I've written that on my piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Applaud here. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no, I just want to say, listen, Liz, it's been a pleasure. And you've uh, taken the podcast onto new heights. And you're uh, going to be a very hard act to follow, it says here. So, uh, no, no, seriously, though. Uh, um, uh, we're going to miss you lots, as you know. And um, we'll try our very best. But I hope you'll, you'll listen. You'll now become a listener. Absolutely not. No, never listening again. Emilio, do you want to follow up? No, I've got nothing to say. Okay. Well, yeah, as I said, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guests, Kevin and Emilio. You can download this podcast on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. Thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 
listen, cricket fans will remember John Arlett a long, long time ago, legendary cricket commentator, when he gave his last ever commentary at Lords, I think it was, and the other commentators round about him as he handed over to a colleague at the end of an over, uh, they all um, applauded him, gave him a stand ovation. So I'm going to give him applause. There you go. Oh, thank there you. Go. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> I've always wanted a cricket standing ovation. You're welling up. You're welling up, aren't you? I'm welling up. Yeah, I'm definitely welling up.